Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Stephen J. Zipperstein to discuss his new book, Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History, published by Live Right W.W. Norton in 2018. Professor Zipperstein is the Daniel E. Koshland Professor in Jewish Culture and History at Stanford University. Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History is a work that challenges its readers to think differently, to explore the consequences of a single event just three days long, not only for its actors, both victims and perpetrators, but its legacy as well. Memorialized by poets and authors, documented in painstaking detail by journalists, demographers and historians, accurately or not, Kishinev came to be symbolic of Jewish life in the Russian Empire, a symbol that would have great effect over the course of the 20th century. In bringing together materials found in archives across the world in many languages to complement popular accounts of the event, Professor Zipperstein gives us a new lens with which to see the pogrom and its consequences more clearly. In today's interview, we will discover new types of radical politics and anti-Semitism, the until now mysterious origins of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and the ways in which our memories of events are shaped to different, often competing ends. How did the lives of a small Jewish community come to mean so much? I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Zipperstein. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Let's begin with the context uh, in which the book uh, features and in the context of the Kishinev pogrom. And that's the the sort of first section of the book. Can you give us a sense of of the city of Kishinev um, and what Jewish life was like in general um, in this period? Um, well, it's, I mean, it, the, the, the city itself actually, by the, at the, at the moment that the pogrom breaks out in the spring of 1903 is the, um, is one of the largest cities in the Russian empire, but though large, it's, um, it's not, not all that much is known about it. It's, it's rather remote. It's in the a far Southwest corner of the empire an area uh, with rather poor roads um, and um, and rather awful rail transport. The, the Russian government, it seems, um, it doesn't improve um, the um, uh, access to the area uh, because of fear of uh, Romanian invasion. The border of Romania is just a few dozen miles uh, to the to the west. Of the capital city of uh, of of, of um, Bessarabia, the area that Kishinev is located in, and is a provincial capital. So, on the one hand, it's a very large city, and it's grown very quickly um, in the um, few decades before the pogrom. Um, and it's an area that is both extremely poor, but has exceptionally rich land. Um, and uh, and a Jewish community that's fairly new to the area. Jews have been living in this region for for hundreds of years, but the Jewish community of Kishnev and the other cities in the region have uh, have grown uh, dramatically uh, in the decades before the um, before the pogrom. And it, it's an area known for its agricultural. Uh, goods uh, for its hides, uh, for um, various uh, for its wine, fairly 
cheap wine, most of which is uh, exported to Odessa and other nearby ports. Odessa is about 100 miles to the east and, and very much dominates the, uh, the region, uh, the region's um, uh, commercial life. Um, and, uh, and in many ways, it's Jewish religious life. It's, um, it has a, a large uh, community um, and uh, close to perhaps half of the population of Kishnev is, uh, is Jewish, but uh, it, has, uh, it has many Jewish schools and institutions and a local um, yeshiva, but uh, no rabbinic figures of, of uh, stature beyond the immediate region. And that's true up until the 1920s and, uh, and, and 30s. It's a, it's a, a city comp- comparable, say, to, uh, to Fresno, uh, California, in um uh in uh the the 1950s and and 60s uh, much more similar to fresno than uh to um, say sacramento or los angeles what is a pogrom um and can you describe the events of the pogrom of 1903 as they unfolded well the the term itself the actual origins of the term pogrom uh aren't really known the the term itself derives from Russian word for for, for, for thunder uh, or storm, and um, and the term is is used before Kishinev and afterwards uh, to describe all sorts of attacks in in Russia. Um, in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom, and then the wave of attacks during the constitutional crisis um, um, uh, in Russia between 1905 and 1906, the term comes to be understood by Jews in a very particular way. It comes to be understood as a government condoned or coordinated attack against Jews. Um, And um, uh, technically, that is not correct, as I describe in my book. And as scholars before me have demonstrated before, um, um, before me, um, the the fact that it's believed by Jews, um, deeply believed by Jews and others, that the government uh, coordinates such attacks and that it coordinated the Kishnev pogrom, and in the case of Kishnev, that there um, was um, actual proof that the government coordinated the pogrom in the form of a document um, signed by the Minister of Interior, that has a great impact, a great impact on Jews, on Jewish attitudes toward Russia, on Jewish attitudes toward conservatism, um, on um, the opening up of, uh, uh, of, of, of Jewish immigration to the United States at a time when the immigration of Chinese, for example, is, is, is profoundly restricted. And um, pogrom as I see it, came to mean for Russian Jews the outer limits of the unbearable conditions of Jews in Russia. So even if you haven't personally experienced a pogrom, um, it's always possible that you might. And um, and it's um, it comes to pogroms come to be uh, come to be seen as the ultimate proof of the unlivability of Romanov Russia, um, the need to either leave it or transform it radically. Why is this pogrom such a point of fascination 
um, in history, both Jewish uh, and general history, um, but particularly in the memory of modern Jews. Um, what is it about it that stands out as different or as unique? Um, it's certainly not the first outbreak of violence in Jewish history or even um, for Russian Jews. Um, and perhaps most importantly, uh, and this is a, a central theme that runs throughout your book, um, is the ways in which it engaged an international community. Um, what was it about it that engaged, that held the attention um, of Jews and non-Jews uh, outside of the pale? Now, I, um, much of my book is devoted to the pogroms imprint and, um, and the way in which why it becomes what it eventually becomes for Jews and for others, um, as, um, as I try to demonstrate. The, um, part of the reason has to do just with chance and contingency, the, the location of Kishnev. Um, very close to the Romanian border, which is the most porous of all the, the borders in the Russian Empire, the easiest border to smuggle news out from. Um, and probably for this reason, um, the Zionist movement establishes its so-called correspondence bureau in Kishnev, um, headed by a very enterprising activist, a doctor named uh, Jacob Bernstein Kogan, who was established by 1903, um, um, uh, very close connections with newspapers throughout the world. He is no longer at the helm of this bureau in 1903, but the connections exist. And because of the porousness of the border, because of the connections of, of Bernstein Kogan, news about the uh, pogrom spreads with alacrity. And we know how that happens. We have access to telegrams received by newspapers around the world sent by um, Bernstein Kogan. And it's a moment where newspapers, and especially the very enterprising and rather sensationalist uh, Hearst Press, the, um, um, the press uh, owned by William Randolph Hearst, um, is keenly interested in Jews, uh, Hearst uh, is considering a run for the uh, Democratic ticket for the governorship of New York. He's even considering a presidential run. He's courting Jews. Jews are now numerous in New York, and uh, in particular in Chicago and elsewhere. And he, um, he, the 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 the, the Kishnev pogrom fascinates him from the outset. He devotes large sums of money for uh, for Jewish relief, and um, and then sends. Uh, this ace reporter, um, uh, a well-known Irish revolutionary, Michael Davitt, to um, Kishnev to report on the aftermath of the pogrom. Uh, his articles are widely read. The book based on the articles becomes the first best-selling book in any Western language on the condition of Jews in Russia. And that book is devoted to the Kishnev pogrom. The pogrom, I think, also garners an enormous attention because it's the first um, significant attack against Jews um, in, in the new century, a new century that ostensibly will be a more benign um, 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 century than the previous one. And so its, um, its impact is, uh, is all the greater. Um, uh, newspapers are beginning to use uh, uh, photographs, um, and the Kishna pogrom is uh, the first... Uh, event, anti-Jewish event of its kind with pictorial evidence, 
And I think another reason, oddly enough, has to do with the relatively small number of Jews who were killed in the Kishinev pogrom. It's a, it's a very violent attack, as I describe it in my book. But you're right, by no means the largest attack against Jews um, in that region. Pogroms are by no means as prevalent in the region as Jews have um, tended to recall in the past. The previous wave is between 19... Uh, between 1881 and 1882, with with no Jews killed um, during those attacks. Um, But um, in Kishnev, the 45 Jews who were killed, uh, another four die of wounds um, incurred um, during the pogrom um, uh, shortly afterwards, the 45 Jews who were killed could all be lined up in a photograph. You could see all of them. And um, and in some ways, the... um, that creates a kind of pictorial power that is in its way far greater than, say, the killing of five or 600 Jews on the streets in Odessa in fall of 1905. And um, so I think that and the, the, the final reason I'd mention is that the pogrom occurs during a period of unusual coherence for uh, a full range of Jewish political movements, um, Zionists, Jewish socialists, and others. They're at their height um, just at that moment. And um, and despite all of their differences, all agree that the Kishnev pogrom is an event of, of, of absolutely shattering importance. And so, um, and then all integrate the event into their institutional history. Um, Zionism eventually comes to see the the Kishnev pogrom as a as the precursor to the creation of the Haganah and the Israeli army, and um, and then and we could talk about this later if you like. The pogrom has a um, a, a comparable impact, astonishingly enough, on uh, a full array of of other figures and institutions, in, including some of the most influential anti-Semitic um, endeavors of the 20th century. Over the course of the interview, I hope we come back to uh, unpack uh, your answer and the number of themes that you raised. Um, something there that you spoke at the end um, of your last answer was about sort of the stakes of, of the Kishinev pogrom or the legacy, the stakes of the legacy of the pogrom. Um, so I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit on this, what was at stake? Um, and I think in your book, one of the things that's uh, exciting about it, um, and particularly in with regard to an event that's so well known and, and has so much literature written about it, um, you analyze or, or take into consideration um, both things that are accurate and inaccurate representations of the events. Um, and your book is by no means limited to looking for causes uh, or things like that. Um, so again, what were the stakes um, of this representation or of, of the reception um, of the pogrom? What I mean by the stakes there is um, at the end of your last uh, answer um, and later on in your book when you talk about uh, the relationship between the pogrom and the protocols of the elders of Zion, you talk about how the event was seen both as um, a Jewish powerlessness, as victims, um, but also as an example of Jewish power. Um, and some sort of mysterious cabal or um, some way in which Jews can influence public opinion or world events. 
And that's one example of the ways in which the pogrom had large stakes, the ways in which people perceived Jews. Um, but it seems to be that the pogrom was used by many people internationally over a long period of time for certain purposes. Uh, your book ends with the ways in which the pogrom is related to the establishment of the NAACP. Yeah, the, I mean, when you say used, um, much of what occurs is done for the most, for, uh, out of sincerity. Uh, uh, of course, uh, people can both be sincere and hideous. The, those who are responsible for writing the first version of, of what becomes the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, its, it's original title is somewhat different, uh, write it as is generally agreed upon by students of the first version, and I uh, use their work and then go beyond it because of a new material that I, w I discovered about its first publisher and its likely first author or co-author, author Pavel Klushevan, one of the most uh, one of the most uh, famous um, anti-Semites um, in 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 uh, in late imperial Russia. Those who produce the protocols are, as I see it, sincere in their uh, beliefs, as hideous as their beliefs are. Um, the um, what came to interest me a great deal about the um, about all that tumbled from the Kishnev pogrom is the um, creation of a very thick mythology that, in turn, has a history of its own, and uh, and so even if there is not a direct relationship, and as I see it, there is often not a direct relationship between the actual facts of the pogrom and how the pogrom ends up being seen through various eyes, um, some eyes sympathetic to Jews, others not, um, those beliefs end up shaping history. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and all of us uh, share beliefs that might perhaps be empirically um, disproven, but that nonetheless um, define who we are and how we see the world. Um, so um, in the wake of the pogrom, for example, um, the impact of Chaim Nachman Bialik's uh, brilliant uh, poem, Bir HaRegan, The City of Killing, um, where he puts at the very um, horrific epicenter of the, the pogrom um, a uh, section that describes the um, shameful behavior of Jewish men, of husbands, of, of brothers, of uh, uh, fathers who cower uh, with terror as uh, their wives, their mothers, their sisters are, um, are being raped. Um, um, this, um, what I've come to conclude based on a variety of archival sources as described in the book is that such incidents do occur and um, and Bialik is basing himself on um, testimony that he collects. Uh, he spends some five weeks in Kishnev after the pogrom um, speaking with dozens and dozens of witnesses um, and survivors. What Bialik 
excludes, perhaps astonishingly, from the poem, but includes in his copious notes based on his conversations, are all of the acts of Jewish self-defense, both organized and sporadic, that occur. Um, and um, these find no echo at all um, in the poem, which is all the more surprising since the arguments made in the many, many dozens of trials of pogromists, there were some 900 um, uh, arrested, and the trials of clusters of, 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 of pogromists continued well up, up through December 1903. In their trials, as often as not, their defense attorneys argue that the, um, the, the violence, uh, the, at least the, 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 the fact that this, um, the attack resulted in extreme violence was all a byproduct of Jewish aggression, that Jews attacked Gentiles on the second day of the pogrom, the most, the fiercest day of the pogrom, with such ferocity that uh, the Gentiles were simply acting in self-defense. And um, so oddly enough, the, um, um, the non-Jewish narratives highlighted Jewish aggression and the best known, the most canonic of all Jewish narratives highlighted the uh, Jewish passivity and, the, um, and, and, and both have had an impact on um, subsequent, um, sometimes very influential institutions and bodies of literature. Let's take up the, the book itself. Um, it's made up of five chapters, six chapters, which are sort of, in one sense, independent essays, and in the other sense, um, together build up your perspective of, of the pogrom and, and the way in which it was received. What would you say are some of the themes that undergird the different essays and bring them together um, and really hold together your perspective in the book? Um, the um, The book is structured in such a way where the the very first chapter uh, makes a case as to the pervasiveness of the term pogrom as an explanatory term that basically encapsulates how so many Jews and others have come to see uh, the, Jew the Russian Jewish past and perhaps the Jewish past as a whole. And, um, and uh, I, uh, I problematize that notion. And um, with um, the part of the book's intent to make a case that um, that those who who minimize for political reasons or other reasons the um, 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 uh, Jewish disaster in the last century uh, are um, are simply are simply wrong to do so, but Jews who tend to see uh, recent Jewish history as simply a history of disaster are themselves wrong. And, um, and it seemed to me a, um, a useful way of, of wrestling with both assumptions was to actually take the uh, totemic event before the Holocaust, the Kishnev pogrom, the event that defined um, for 20th century Jews before the Second World War the outer limits of anti-Jewish violence, and to try to understand it, um, it both the event itself and its, um, and its aftermath. So um, the first chapter 
wrestles with those themes. The second chapter looks closely at the city of Kishnev itself, um, the uh, region of Bessarabia that is located in, and um, and um, and and the the um, relationships between Jews and, and non-Jews in the region. Um, the third chapter is a very detailed um, um, portrait of the pogrom itself. The pogrom, as I argue in the book, is probably the best known event or the best documented event in Russian Jewish life at the time. And so one can actually move almost quarter hour by quarter hour and see what it is that occurs on the streets of Kishnev um, during the, the day and a half that the pogrom is at its um, at its its height. Uh, I argue that there is a fascinating interplay between this wealth of documentation and the um, the the the, um, the density of mythology that um, um, that uh, um, that the Kishnev pogrom produces. The fourth chapter focuses on the two most influential uh, works on the Kishnev pogrom. Um, Bialik's um, uh, uh, poem in the city of killing and um, and the book by Michael David um, on the Kishnev pogrom and I was able to use Michael David's notes uh, the notes he took for the book they're located in Trinity College Dublin and uh, draw on them to to look closely at how he saw the pogrom much of what he what he excised from the book and um and how he um was able to construct his narrative the um the fifth chapter is devoted to arguably the most single most influential work to have been um shaped by the pogrom a work vastly different of course from bialik's poem and that's the first version of the protocols of the elders of zion and i benefited in the construction of this chapter from a um a previously um, unknown um, um, archival source in private hands. It was it was in the hands of a Moldovan Jewish journalist. Uh, the private papers of Khrushchevan, the uh, publisher and likely the first author or co-author of the first version. And uh, these were papers that Khrushchevan had given to a nephew of his, his most beloved relative, and and probably a cache of papers that included. Um, the most sensitive documents that Khrushchevan um, had in his possession. And I could speak about why these were so sensitive um, a bit later on. And the last chapter, perhaps the, in some ways, the most surprising of all, though the chapter in Khrushchevan certainly surprised me too, as I was writing it, um, uh, is a chapter devoted to the, um, the imprint of uh, the, the Kishnev pogrom and subsequent pogroms on, uh, on the American left uh on jews and the left and those beyond the jewish um jewish left and uh what i came to understand was that the explosion of attention in the united states in particular um um um, um surrounding the pogrom um created a um a, a conversation that had been rather sporadic uh, before the, the Kishnev pogrom and the pogroms of 1905-1906 about the lack of attention um, given in the United States, even on the left, to lynching. And um, and the uh, a direct connection between 
lynching and pogroms was actually um, first formulated publicly and uh, prominently by a now largely forgotten uh, turn-of-the-century Jewish radical, Anna Strunsky, uh, as it happens, a graduate of my university, Stanford, and uh, uh, she uh, uh, had co-authored a book with Jack London. Um, uh, she was a, a prominent uh, a radical. She ended up uh, traveling in uh, Russia for uh, some two years with her, um, uh, with the man who became her husband, William Walling, who wrote uh, um, the best, most widely read book about Jew- about Russian radicals uh, before John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World, a book published um, 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 in uh, just after their trip to Russia, their stay in Russia between 1906 and 1908. And it was um, on the stage of Cooper Union in um, speaking about the book that Anna Strunsky actually made a direct connection between American lynching and pogroms. And immediately after that meeting, uh, discussion started in earnest, uh, finally culminating with the creation of what became the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, in, in Anna Strunsky's and William Walling's apartment in, um, uh, in New York City. Walling becomes the first chair or co-chair of the NAACP. And um, so um, the, uh, if you will, the promiscuous impacts of Kishnev and um, uh, ended up fascinating me um, and, um, and the way it created so much knowledge, um, some based on misperception, um, but at the same time knowledge that has become part of the intellectual baggage of so many in the 20th, 20th century and later. You describe the book as a micro history and as an international history. What are these two historical methods and how did they shape uh, your writing of the book? Um, that, that was hard. <laughs> it, was, it was hard to do because I, um, I also wanted it to be a book that was a, a work of, of subtlety. The story I'm telling is I think a subtle one, but I wanted to write it in such a way where it it um, it spoke beyond um, uh, beyond the world of historians and people in Jewish studies, and um, so I worked very hard at trying to make it as as accessible as possible without losing any of its uh, intellectual density, and um, um, but the um, um, this is um, a close study of one particular place and events that occur in the place. And at the same time, the events that occur in the place, um, often radically transmuted, end up shaping the consciousness of Jews and so many others and help Jews understand the um, contour of Russian Jewish life, an immensely complex contour, end up, as I see it, um, serving to flatten um, the um, the sense that so many Jews um, come to have of um, um, the lives of Russian Jews. The those streets, especially the the streets where the worst of the violence occurs during the Kishinev pogrom, on the second 
after second day of the pogrom, lasting from about 11 a.m. on the second day to around 3.30 or 4, um, those streets, really six or seven um, uh, streets, really no more than alleyways. And I, I've seen the streets subsequently during a trip to Moldova um, end up being, as I see it, the best known streets in Russian Jewish life. And um, to what what can be really extrapolated from those experiences, um, to what extent these streets are typical of the lives of um, the, very, the millions of Jews who lived in Russia, um, serious questions could be raised about that. So mine is a book that takes violence against Jews very seriously and then raises questions, um, in some instances troubling questions, about what it is that we as Jews and that others have done with um, that history. And, um, um, you know, among the questions that research on the book raised for me, uh, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm someone who sees the world through a, a left liberal prism, uh, are questions about um, the depth of my own uh, distrust of political conservatism, uh, a distrust which um, um, was uh, deepened um, uh, by the belief um, that results from the Kishinev pogrom that arch-conservative governments like those of Imperial Russia um, actually plan attacks against Jews like that of Kishinev, where people go beat and kill and rape Jews. And, uh, and that belief, at least in the case of Kishinev, was based on a forgery. Uh, a forgery, the so-called Pleva letter that ostensibly was signed by the Minister of Interior, who hated Jews, as did most Russian officials at the time, but uh, uh, did not ferment attacks on the streets of uh, the cities of, of the Russian Empire. And um, so I, I, I finished the book, I admit, with a greater degree of modesty with regard to my own assumptions about the interplay between rationality and belief in my own belief system. And, uh, and uh, it's for this reason that I actually begin the book with um, the quote of the art historian Abby Warburg, that, uh, uh, where the, the very first words of the book are, um, um, uh, and let me get this right in turn, um, where she says God is in the details. And um, as an historian, that's where I look for uh, causality. That's where I look for, for meaning. And at the same time, I, uh, I've come to realize that uh, for me, no less than for others who might define their, um, uh, their um, uh, uh, deepest assumptions on the basis of religious belief, there are deep, deeply felt beliefs that shape my own worldview that probably can't be shaken and at the same time are based on, in some instances, historically questionable assumptions. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it is something that the, the book contributes not only as a work of history, um, but in thinking about the contemporary relevance 
of history, not just of the event necessarily, um, but of a type of thinking. Um, the book itself is made up of this sort of international perspective. Um, as you mentioned, you found this archive in, in Ireland, and um, it's certainly Russia and America um, and across Europe. So I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit for us um, the process of writing and researching the book. Uh, what was it like? Uh, how did you bring together all these uh, various archival sources, um, as well as the other types of sources you use? You use literary sources, um, as you mentioned by the poem, Chaim Nachman Bialik, um, but also journalistic sources. Um, so what was the process of researching the book like, and how did it come together for you? Uh, with difficulty. <laughs> um, I, uh, I wasn't sure at first how it would come together. And I, I worked a great deal on the book's rhythm, if you will. And, um, and in some instances, the, uh, some of the more important insights were the result of discoveries uh, made rather late in the book's writing. The, my discovery of this archive, this archival cache of Khrushchev's papers, where I found that Khrushchev, who today is seen as one of the most influential pioneers of what's called in uh, the southern regions, at least of the former Soviet Union, Christian socialism, which combines a uh, antagonism toward capitalism, a, um, a uh, embrace of integral nationalism, uh, anti-Semitism, homophobia. I found that Khrushchevan um, among the papers that I discovered was an adolescent diary of his, where he speaks very vividly of his uh, a sexual relationship he's then involved in with a Cossack, um, uh, a declaration that he wishes he was born a lady, and um, and uh, and and a host of other uh, revelations that uh, uh, were probably much of the reason why he handed this material to a, a, a very trusted and beloved relative uh, when he was dying of cancer. He died at the age of 49. Um, also, I mean, a great surprise to me because Khrushchevan was seen in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom and for various reasons by Jews in Russia and elsewhere as one of the most powerful anti-Semites uh, in the world at the time. Uh, Khrushchevan was in such debt that he's, his furniture is uh, assessed by a series of bailiffs. I know the kind of wood that his desk was made of, his bookshelves are made of. I know uh, I have a list of all of his, his, his furniture in his Petersburg apartment. He moves from Kishinev to Petersburg uh, soon before the pogrom. And um, it, it also, it turns out, and I only have one source for this, but I a rather uh, 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 um, um, substantial source. Uh, his mother dies very young, and he's uh, deeply affected by this and mourns her throughout his life. His, his stepmother is, it seems, a Jew. Uh, I imagine a Jew who converted. Uh, he's he's um, raised in Siroki, which is 60% Jewish, a town filled with Yiddish um, signs in front of stores. And... Um, uh, and uh, this I didn't discover in the archive, but I discovered separately his, his, his sister, his stepsister, the uh, daughter of his stepmother, uh, runs off with a Jew 
to the United States. And there are pictures of her in a Russian language American newspaper in the 1930s uh, with her hair covered. She's an Orthodox Jew living in Baltimore. And for a while, her husband worked as a shamus in a synagogue in New York. You know, this you can't make up. <laughs> I, I realized when I discovered this that had I been writing a novel and delivered this to a fiction editor at my press, I published the book with Norton, they would say, no, this is this is impossible. This isn't how life is. And yet here it is. Um, so um, the to some extent, the structure of the book resulted from um, these surprising surprising finds. Um, uh, on another level, I knew from the outset that the pogrom exerted an influence that um, often cut across the standard lines of Jewish and non-Jewish history, of Russian history and Russian Jewish history. These lines really a byproduct of um, the uh, the fall of, of of Imperial Russia, the creation of the Soviet Union, the end of uh, any kind of coherent Jewish historical writing in the Soviet Union. And what I was attempting to do as someone who could read across the various relevant languages is to try to create a history as close to the way in which it was lived at the time um, as, as, as is possible. Um, and um, so I, um, what I did with this book as I've done with previous books and, and is to simply swim in as much of the material as possible subdivided um, as sensibly as I knew how, and then allow the um, um, allow the form to emerge out of this mass of data, and I lived with it for uh, for a while until I felt the um, I had something more than formlessness. How would you say the pogrom still features um, either in in general history or maybe more interestingly um, in Jewish memory today? Uh, on one hand, there's so much material about it, um, but part of what you uncover in your book is not just uh, the facts, um, but the ways in which it became, as you mentioned, totemic um, of a number of different uh, ideas, some of them competing. So in the contemporary setting, um, what role do you think Kishinev and the Pogrom of 1913 uh, plays in people's minds and, and memory? Well, 1903, the... Um I, I think it, it's 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 obvious. One of the more obvious examples um, are the various speeches of Benjamin Netanyahu, and who uh, refers to the Kishinev pogrom at the uh, at a memorial for the for the Toulouse um, uh, massacre, the massacre of French Jewish children. Uh, refers to it in memorial service in, in 2012. He um, he references. The pogrom, or at least one of Bialik's poems about the pogrom, after the killing of the three um, uh, yeshiva teenagers in um, in the West Bank, that uh, precipitates the um, the last Gaza war. Um, and part of this has to do with, I suppose, the uh, the existence of Bialik's uh, Kishinev poetry in the school curriculum that um, Netanyahu might have experienced as a child. I can't recall whether he was raised in the United States or, or in Israel, but he would have had access to it. But, um, and his, uh, uh, he, he cherry picks from, uh, 
uh, Bialik's poetry. He he rarely recites lines that speak about the insidiousness of vengeance. But um, I think the, um, the 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 notion embedded in um, in in Bialik's poetry that um, uh, one of the worst traits of the Jewish past was the absence of aggression, and consequently, at least as Netanyahu would read it, one of the crucial um, 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 facets of the contemporary Jewish consciousness is is aggression, uh, I, I think is a, a prime example of the way in which the poem ends up uh, remaining front and center in the consciousness of very influential uh, Jews, uh, Jews today. And um, the, um, the fact that the protocols really remains the one truly resonant anti-Semitic work of all the huge, huge body of anti-Semitica uh, produced in modernity is, um, I think, a vivid example of the way in which the pogrom continues to resonate. It resonates profoundly in the consciousness of the Russian right, um, uh, or even in a figure who draws from this arsenal and who isn't necessarily a part of the Russian right, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his late life book on Jews and Russians, he devotes nearly an entire chapter to the Kishnev pogrom. Uh, and he argues in that chapter that the Kishnev pogrom's most insidious impact is its impact on Russians, not Jews. And he argues that the uh, worldwide condemnation of, of Russia in the wake of the pogrom, the belief that the widespread belief that the Russian government w was responsible, weakened the allegiance of Russian liberals toward the Romanov regime in Russia, weakened the commitment of uh, governments elsewhere. And he draws a direct line from the Kishnev pogrom to the Bolshevik revolution. And so the, um, in, in non-Jewish circles and in circles inimical, inimical to Jews and circles um, um, that speak for Jews, uh, the Kishnev pogrom remains alive. I think probably it's, it's greatest if less palpably obvious impact is in the way in which it and the residue it leaves um, created an impression um, of the events of, of Kishnev as Jewish normalcy. This is what Jewish life was like. Almost, I mean, with enormous frequency, and I've collected these obituaries over the years, obituaries in the New York Times of Jews born in the Russian Empire, um, almost invariably, when a Jew um, who's come to the United States from the Russian Empire, from pre-1917 Russia, dies, um, the, um, the reason why this person or his or her family has come to the United States is credited to pogroms, that they're escaping pogroms. And with great frequency, um, the, people in the, the, name, the people in the obituary come from regions where there were no pogroms. Um, so um, the conflation of the Jewish past with pogrom is so pervasive. And it seems to me that was not created um, alone, but consolidated inordinately by the Kishnev pogrom.
Thank you so much for coming on to the program. Uh, it was wonderful to get a chance to talk to you about your book, um, which I certainly found uh, fascinating as I was reading it, and I'm sure many of the listeners will. Um, we've been here today with Professor Stephen J. Zipperstein on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network, uh, talking about his new book, Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History, published by Liverlight uh, Norton Press uh, in 2018.